The following is an encore performance. You're listening to Tales from the South. This is Paula Morell, and welcome to the Tales from the South podcast. From UALR Public Radio and William F. Lehman Public Library, this is Tales from the South. True stories told before a live audience. Here's executive producer and host, Paula Morell, live at Tales from the South. What'd you think about tonight's band, The Salty Dogs? Check out their website at thesaltydogs.net. All right, welcome to Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, and to another edition of Tales from the South, presented by William F. Lehman Public Library right here in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm your host, Paula Morell. On my left here, strumming his 1931 National Resonator tonight and every week is blues guitarist Mark Simpson. Mark wrote our theme music and plays for us live each week. And our incredible set back here, made of genuine screen doors from the Delta with mixed media portraiture are by esteemed Arkansas artist V.L. Cox from her Images of the American South collection. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of these works goes to Tales from the South. More can be seen at her website, greatfineart.com. All right, are y'all ready for some Southern-style storytelling? Tonight's stories are all about changes. Changes that can happen in moments, years, or lifetimes. All stories are true and told by the Southerners who live them. Later tonight, Rod Lorenzen finds comfort and conflict in his childhood cure-all companion. And then Judith Waller Carroll watches the metamorphosis of time take over her father. But let's get started with Ann Perry and a sudden slip of a saw in Slice of Life. My fingers dance on the keyboard as I birth my latest fiction piece. Heading toward the climax, where my poor character learns she's the victim of an internet scam, I am jarred by the sound of the phone. Anne, it's Karina, my next-door neighbor sobs. Joe cut off his finger. We have to go to hospital. I'll be right there. Another chance to show my California neighbors some Southern care. I run out of the house, door unlocked, grateful I am dressed. My heartbeat accelerates. Joe and Karina Fernandez's trailblazer is in front of my driveway. Karina gestures wildly for me to come with them. She has blood on her hands and face. I stumble to get into the back seat, and one of my sandals falls off. I let the other one drop in the driveway. Karina steps on the gas. Joe moans, huddled over his hand, wrapped in a towel. It hurts, he screams. Hold on, baby. Karina drives faster. I put my hands on both of their shoulders and pray. Is there any remover of difficulty save God? Joe moans again. I think of the finger. Where is it? I decide not to ask such a left brain question. (laughs) Karina is behind several cars in the slow lane and honks. Joe says she should have gone another way. I tell him it's going to be okay, even though that seems unlikely. What are the kids gonna think? Karina begins to cry. There is blood everywhere. I picture 11-year-old Jocelyn and 9-year-old Joseph coming home, wondering what has happened. I also think of how I will arrive at the hospital with no shoes, no purse, no cell phone. Even though they are new to the area, Karina seems to know exactly where she is going. Joe cries out again. Karina hands me her cell phone. 
I call Karina's sister, no answer. Then I call the hospital emergency number, but no one picks up. Joe is shaking and groaning, rocking back and forth. It hurts. Hang on. Is there any remover? We're here. Somehow I jump out of the back seat and run through the emergency room door. This is an urgent emergency, I announce, aware of my redundancy. He's cut off his finger with a table saw. I've made an assumption, having recently seen Joe cutting wood in the backyard for their new floors. Joe and Karina are inside. I tell Karina that I will park the car. No, go take care of the children, she says. They'll be home from school. I drive their trailblazer barefoot and without a license. I am glad that they trust me and that I know their children. It seems to take forever to get to our cul-de-sac. I pull into the Fernandez's driveway. The front door is open. The kids are already home. They appear. Jocelyn's face is grave. Joseph's unreadable. Where are mom and dad? Why are you driving our car? It's going to be okay, I assure them. Your parents are at the hospital. Your father cut his finger. I told myself it was only paint, said Jocelyn. I'll get my purse and shoes, and then I'll take you to the hospital. My voice sounds even, calm. Your shoes are in the road, says Joseph. <laughs> Another thing they must have found strange. I race home, grab my purse, and start an email message. Subject line, emergency prayers needed. Body of text, Joe Fernandez cut his finger off at emergency room, Charlton. I don't care about the sentence structure, punctuation, or capitalization. Joseph's bursts in the back door. My mom wants to talk to you. He hands me the phone. Karina's voice is strained. I need you to do something hard. Go into the backyard and find the finger. Put it in a plastic bag and keep it dry. Put it on top of another plastic bag with ice. Don't let it get wet. My heart convulses. Search for the finger? I prepare an ice chest, finish the email with the word pray. The kids do not know about my task. At some point, they had let their dogs into the backyard, and I wonder about the timing. I grab a plastic bag. I search my heart in my throat. Jocelyn brings the phone out to me again. It is Karina. I can't find it, I say. I'll call you back. What is it? Jocelyn's face is earnest. I know that I have to tell her. His finger. I say. Karina's sister, Medea, squeals into the driveway and jumps out with her four children, five-year-old twin girls and two older boys. Kids, get inside, she commands. She looks through the bushes and inside the table saw. We need the kids, she says. All six children come out to help us, the twins crying, one clutching her stomach. I hold her briefly. It's going to be okay. The phrase has become a meaningless litany. Medea asks for a ladder to check the roof. That finger could have been flung anywhere. Medea asks, which hand was it? Where did they get the towel? Whether he had the finger in the towel? Whether it could be out in the car? I have no answers. After she comes down from the roof, we look in the car. 
My mind is a whirr. Could I have found the finger if I hadn't gone to get the ice chest first or hadn't sent the email? When did the dogs get out? I call our vet and ask the receptionist if the dogs could be x-rayed and if a finger was found, would it still be, yes, the x-ray would show the finger, no, it would not be useful anymore. <laughs> I tell Maria that I will go back to the hospital to be with Karina, driving their trailblazer, this time with shoes. I head there, but Karina calls. Joe is in surgery. It is too late for the finger. Subtext, no need to come. I find myself at the grocery store. What do kids like? Pizza, popsicles. Jocelyn likes bean dip, Joseph pasta. I buy all this in packages of frozen enchiladas, tamales. The bill comes to $45 and I don't even think about it. When I get back, Medea is gone and the six kids are there by themselves. I show them the food and pass out popsicles. I want red, I want purple. A splatter of blood crosses the kitchen floor and trails through the dining room and garage. I arrange six chairs around the kitchen table, start to neaten up the kitchen and move some of the blood splattered boards of the wood floor Joe had been working on. Medea comes back from the hospital. I'm taking Jocelyn and Joseph home with me. I don't know if Corinne and Joe will be back tonight. The kids pack. A car pulls up outside. It is Stephanie, the teenager, who helps me with housework. I ask her if she will help me clean up bloodstains in the neighbor's house. <laughs> sure, she says nonchalantly. Coke works. I marvel at how this 16-year-old is so casual about the blood as she cleans it up with Coca-Cola. I busy myself with washing the dishes and cooking enchiladas. The phone rings multiple times, mostly relatives who only speak Spanish. I try to tell them about the accident and know that they, they wonder what I, a gringa, is doing there. My husband, Tim, goes over to the hospital. When he comes home, he tells me how badly the hand was damaged, how Joe was awake and talking during the operation. We go back to the house to gather bags of bloody paper towels. As we are leaving, a car pulls into the driveway, two male friends having brought Joe and Karina home. Joe, still wearing his bloody t-shirt, is smiling, waving his well-bandaged hand above his head, ever the host. Come on in. We visit for a while. Karina asks if I will go with her to the pharmacy. We talk about the accident while the prescription is filled. Every finger on Joe's right hand has been damaged. Joe has no memory of what happened, but just before going out to saw the piece of wood, they had found out that his ex-wife had moved to Dallas, which upset them. We drive home. Joe is still playing host to his friends. Blood is seeping through his bandages. Get some rest, I say. He looks at me and smiles. The enchiladas were good. The next morning, I wake up thinking about Joe's hand, his right hand held high over his head. As soon as I get home from teaching, I go next door. There are lots of cars in the driveway and unfamiliar children in the front yard. Karina says they've had a hard night and that they had gone back to the hospital and the doctor had put pins in all of Joe's fingers. Joe is surrounded by a circle of sympathizers in the living room. Come on in, Anne. We're having a meeting to decide who will give me a finger. So far, no one has offered. <laughs> I'll give you a toe, baby, but I need my fingers for the kids, says Karina. I look at the serious faces around me. Karina tells them who I am in Spanish. I can tell she's sharing the story of the trip to the hospital. Tell them about my shoes, I say. She does. They all laugh. 
I tell Joe that people are praying for him, hoping for the best. I'm keeping my fingers crossed myself, he says. We laugh. He holds up his left hand. Most of you count like this. One, two, three, four, five. He points to each finger on his right hand as he counts. But I'm going to be counting one, one and a half, two. Again, we laugh. The following day, I wake up thinking about Joe's hand again, held high. Out of the window, I see different cars in their driveway. I think about how Joe uses his hands to do construction, to pet his dogs, to get dressed, to shave, to love his wife. At the pharmacy, Karina had told me that just before the accident, Joe's relatives were questioning why they had moved to Texas, away from people who would be there in case anything happened. But look at today, she marveled. Just look at today. Ann Gordon Perry from Little Rock now teaches at the Art Institute of Dallas and lives in Duncanville, Texas with her husband and dog. Their neighbors have returned to California. None of the replacement neighbors have lost appendages to date. <laughs> Next, Rod Lorenzen's desire to change a cure-all reminds him of the constant of change in the mercurochrome files. It is the winter of my big sister's discontent due to a nagging sore throat that seems to go on for weeks. Finally, my father intervenes. He seizes our old broom from a closet and plucks off one of the long, thin bristles. After taping a piece of cotton to one end, he anoints this with a household antiseptic product called Mercurochrome, then sticks the whole thing down into my sister's mouth and proceeds to swab the back of her throat with it until she gags. <laughs> Ever the perfect little Pharisee, I stand there watching, fearful and unbelieving, and think surely my sister will die from such treatment. A few hours later, however, she is still with us and now seems to have been miraculously healed by the mercurochrome. Not long after this, when I'm 12 and just the right age for being careless and silly, I somehow jab the points of my mother's good scissors deep into the soft tissue at the base of my thumb. Oddly enough, there is no blood pouring out, and to my amazement, I am able to look deep into the gaping wound. In a rational household, my parents would trundle me right off to the emergency room for a few stitches. My family is not rational. My father only glares at me and remains silent. I have seen this look before and know it well. It involves these two questions. How could you do something so stupid and how could we possibly be related to one another? <laughs> As I ponder the wiring inside my thumb and wait for my mother to scream and yell, as she always does in a crisis, and sometimes even when there isn't one, she calmly suggests, put some acrylacrome on it. I do as I'm told, but to tell the truth, I am crestfallen. My hope to become the family's immediate center of attention for the next few days has vanished in a haze of apathy and disdain. Later, in the calm of gradual healing, I realized that the rightful celebrity of the moment was, of course, 
Mercurochrome. It is our superhero, our emergency room, and our panacea for cuts and scrapes, chigger bites, various aches, or any malady within dabbing distance. Most households in the U.S. possess a bottle of this mysterious red liquid. It works fast and promotes scarless healing and doesn't sting on open wounds like rival products. Ah, oh, the miracles of Mercurochrome. It causes me to wonder at how Jesus of Nazareth worked his way through the four Gospels on less. <laughs> Some of my friends call it monkey blood. In the summers, every other kid I know seems to be covered with it. These are our red badges of courage. Like the scars from our polio vaccinations, we wear them proudly. But at this time, I can't know that somewhere in the future, a man in a lab will decide that mercurochrome, which contains trace amounts of mercury, is unsafe. Though people swear by mercurochrome, bureaucrats will ban it, and manufacturers won't even bother with trying to prove it's safe. By then, a new generation of antiseptics appear, and the trademark red of mercurochrome will begin to fade fast. There will come a time when you can't find it in Walgreens or Kroger, although you can order it off the internet from places outside the country. Actually, there will be a mercury-free version of it available in the U.S., but one has to wonder if it packs the potency and curative powers of the original, not to mention the aesthetic value. And maybe the American Medical Association will lobby hard against good old mercurochrome, just so doctors won't lose any business to a home cure that lots of people use on a regular basis. After all, dabbing on some mercurochrome is a procedure that defies the complicated business of medical billings and insurance filings and pharmacy visits, not to mention the very idea of government meddling in your private life. <laughs> but I am just a boy now and not terribly concerned about the future, which always seems to be such a long way off. And it is so easy just to have faith in everything. Teachers, baseball heroes, home cures, and a guy like Benny Craig. Benny is chubby and kindly and reads the sports news every night on Channel 11 in these early days of television. Sponsored by Colonial Bread, he is known as the Colonial Bread Man and dutifully wears his bread man's uniform and a policeman's hat when he is on television. He has his own simple prescription on how to make things better. And remember, boys and girls, Benny intones at the end of each broadcast, it never cost an extra cent to be a good sport. On the very day my brother and I begin to build a treehouse, the board we are nailing slips and the hammer smashes the nail of my left thumb. It quickly turns dark and bloody, but I know exactly what to do. Fighting back tears, I rush into the house. As I gingerly dab on some mercurochrome, I begin to have a glimmer that nothing will ever really quite assuage all of life's nicks and cuts. But for now, mercurochrome is always a good place to start, and it pretty much always works. Rod Lorenzen manages the book publishing division for the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies at the Central Arkansas Library System. A former longtime bookseller in Little Rock, he also is co-editor of the book Homecoming, the Southern Family in Short Fiction. In our final story of the night, let's go back in time with Judith Waller Carroll, 
a photograph, and a dance in Dancing Around Daddy. It all started with Darktown Strutter's Ball. It was 1956, and my sister was about 14. She and a couple of girlfriends got the idea to learn the Charleston for an upcoming Roaring Twenties dance. Much to my mother's disapproval, they showed up at our house with records and cranked up the Victrola in the living room. Mama flashed her usual warning look, but my sister ignored her and pushed back a couple of chairs to make room. I hung on the sidelines, eager to join in, but with one ear cocked toward the back of the house where Daddy was reading a Raymond Chandler mystery. Mama made it clear from an early age that once Daddy entered the sanctuary of his home, as he liked to call it, he wanted things orderly, quiet, and calm. She was as meticulous as a general in planning our evenings so that dinner was on the table at six on the dot. My sister and I were seated beside her with quiet voices and company manners, and the house was still as a tomb the rest of the evening so my father could read in peace. Then, Darktown Strutter's Ball started, and Sharon, Loretta, and Myrna began to dance. Myrna was the bossiest of the trio, and since she'd been taking tap dance lessons at the Moose Hall for as long as we could remember, she was the natural leader. At Mama's insistence, the music was playing at the lowest possible volume, but it wasn't long before Sharon turned it up a notch. I was drafted as Loretta's partner, and Pepper, our fox terrier, who went everywhere I went, frolicked beside us. Mama, who loved music of any kind, soon joined us in the living room, dish towel still in hand, tapping her foot and offering suggestions. In an old photo album in our living room, there was a series of pictures of a much younger version of our father, holding an enormous trophy, playing tennis, a group shot with the debate team, and my favorite, Daddy doing the Charleston, arms flung out, legs askew, a look of pure joy on his face. My sister and I would look at those old photographs with a sense of awe. This was a part of our father's life we knew nothing about. The photos we had on the shelf reflected the dignified man who went off with a briefcase every morning to teach eighth grade in a rural school about an hour away. He came home in the evenings, changed into slippers and a cardigan sweater, and retired to his study to read or correct papers, emerging long enough to eat supper and help us with our homework. We'd see glimpses of the younger daddy from time to time. Sometimes, without warning, he would burst into verse. He'd rock back on his heels, close his eyes, and recite a snatch of lines from Shakespeare or Tennyson or one of his other favorites. Other times, he'd stop in his reading to point out an interesting word or turn of phrase. It might be snappy repartee from one of his detective novels or a lyrical line from Ralph Waldo Emerson. He loved to read. Words excited him, and he shared them with anyone within earshot. Listen to this, he would say, lowering his book and looking over the top of his glasses, and we would listen raptly glad to be included in his private world of words and books. But the young, carefree man dancing with such abandon in the photograph might as well have been somebody else. 
Mama's brother Jack, for instance, who laughed easily, joked around with Mama, and sometimes spun Sharon and me around the living room to one of the tunes on the radio. Uncle Jack's good humor was something we could count on. With Daddy, it was fleeting. He could be smiling and laughing one minute, and the next thing we knew, something would rub him the wrong way, and he'd blow like a geyser. His temper got him in trouble at school, too, but he was a gifted teacher, and his students loved him. So the principal and other teachers chalked up his outburst to the artistic temperament. Thanks to Mama's diligence, we didn't glimpse Daddy's temper often. When we'd giggle uncontrollably or shove each other too vigorously while doing homework at the kitchen table, a stern look from Mama with a glance toward Daddy's closed door would usually get us to quiet right down. If things got out of hand, Daddy would come out and intervene. Sometimes he'd put his hands on our shoulders and give us a fatherly lecture about the importance of getting along or he might try a teacherly approach. Here now, what's the problem? Other times he'd shout, quiet, from behind his closed door, or worse, come out and glower at us until we settled down. He'd walk back to his den, shaking his head and muttering, can't a man have any peace? <laughs> Usually, that would be the end of it. But if he'd had a bad day, our actions would be the straw that broke the camel's back. When that happened, he'd storm out of the den, scoop his keys off the kitchen counter, grab his hat off the hook by the door, and head for the Atlas Bar down on Main Street. <laughs> Daddy had been sober since I came along, but back when he was drinking, a trip to the Atlas could mean he'd be gone for days. I guess Mama was still holding her breath. Even though he came back in an hour or so with his temper in check, Mama would sniff the air for a scent of whiskey and scan his eyes for signs that he was off the wagon. Certain our bad behavior had driven him to drink. We didn't mind the trips to the Atlas because it meant we could listen to the music we liked, laugh as often and as loudly as we wanted, bicker over the usual things sisters quarreled about, and run around the house with Pepper nipping at our heels. Most of the time, our evenings were dull and quiet, our sibling rivalry confined to whispered battles behind the closed door of our shared room. So that night, in our glee, we must have forgotten about Daddy reading in the back room. There we were, all of us whirling around, doing our own interpretation of the Charleston. Suddenly, our father appeared out of nowhere and stood in the living room doorway. We stopped in our tracks and held our breath. Daddy walked over to my sister, took her by the hand, and started dancing. It was a sight to behold. His feet moved like they were disembodied, keeping time perfectly, never missing a beat. Our portly father was as graceful as Fred Astaire as he nimbly executed the steps, spun around, bowed to my sister, and then asked my mother to put down her dish towel and take a spin around the room. I recognized the look on his face. It was the same one as the one on the young man in the photographs. Blissful, ecstatic, pure joy. Judith Waller Carroll lived in San Francisco and Montana before moving to a new life in the South. 
She won the 2010 Carducci Poetry Prize from Tallahassee Writers Association and lives in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. How about our stories and storytellers tonight? What'd you think? Thank you to all of our writers, thank you to our live audience, and thank you to UALR Public Radio. You can download and listen to our podcast on our website. We are open for submissions from Southerners. For more information, visit talesfromthesouth.com. Have a great night, and we'll see you next week at Starving Artist Cafe in the Argenta Arts District of North Little Rock, Arkansas, in another edition of Tales from the South. Good night, everybody. Writer accommodations for Tales from the South provided by Robinwood Bed and Breakfast in Little Rock. More at RobinwoodBnB.com. And the Baker House Bed and Breakfast in North Little Rock. More at BakerHouseNLR.com. Live sound and studio assistance provided by the UALR School of Mass Communication. You too can experience Tales in person as a member of our live audience. We're now traveling throughout Arkansas and the South, bringing tales to your community. Details on hosting a live show, our schedule, and ticket information can all be found on our website, talesfromthesouth.com. Thanks for keeping the art of Southern-style storytelling alive, and we'll see you next week on Tales from the South. <laughs>